is Saturday, September 29th, 2018. Time for episode 63 of the Barnhart Podcast. This episode was recorded on August 23rd of this year. It's what we call our In the Can episodes or In the Can episodes. And this is the second of our Ask Ann Anything questions related to the Catholic faith, churchy questions. And we've got a good set of them for you today. So without further ado, let's get to the questions. Anne, would you consider doing a children's catechism podcast? I would consider it, certainly. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm the right person for that. I'm I'm chuckling because, I mean, as this is being recorded, we're in the throes of the reportage about all of this Catholic Me Too and, you know, exposing these um, these uh, cardinals, bishops, and, and priests who are doing horrific, horrific, horrific crimes against adults, adolescents, and to a lesser extent, children. And so the content of what's going on on the website right now is is very adult and, and not for little people at all. But I, I mean, I would consider it, but it, it would seem to me that there, there are already probably really good um, children's catechisms out there. In fact, not too long ago, and Super Nerd write this down, we'll put this in the show notes, um, there is there has just been launched a new website that is an aggregation, a conglomeration of all manner of catechisms um, that are pre pre asteroid pre Vatican II, um, going all the way back to Trent, and you know you you have all these different forms of the Catholic catechism that you can access online and use. I would I I haven't looked specifically for uh, any sort of specifically children's catechism in there. But um, I, I remember years ago when I was when I was um, reading my way into the church that I I bought a, a Baltimore catechism set that it seemed to me could could be used with children, you know, of a certain age, not little teeny tiny people, but um, you know, I would guess starting from about eight years old and so forth. So these resources are out there. I don't know if if necessarily I'm the person to do it, but I mean, sure, I, I would consider it. I, I, I do enjoy teaching and believe it or not, I'm I am a pretty good teacher with children. My initial teaching experience in my life was with was with little people and I credit it with being one of the reasons why I turned out to be a pretty good teacher of adults is because if you can my philosophy was always that you know you've got this room full of twitchy four-year-olds and in my case a lot of the times they had tap shoes on their feet and if you can keep them focused on task and having fun and entertained and then actually teach them to tap dance in an in an ordered manner um then you're you're accomplishing something and i and so i'm not I'm not saying that I'm I'm condescending and I I don't ever think of my adult students ever as as being little bitty kids but I do think that my my pedagogical training way way back in the day teaching little kids was helpful and sure I I could catechize little kids I suppose um but again if there are other really good resources out there which I suspect there are um, then I would, of course, defer to what's already been done. So I well, hope that the answers que- the question. The question was really in podcast form, so it would be like uh, a half an hour th- with Cousin Anne teaching you the catechism. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that could definitely be written down as a as a potential future project. Absolutely. I would consider that. 
Okay, that's on about number 47 on the list of uh, back item things yes. to do. Yes. <laughs> Poor super nerd. <laughs> it's not me who's, who's um, you know, effectively burdened by all these things. It's poor super nerd saying with this list of things of, of you know for Anne Barnhart to do. Oh, there goes there goes more of my life. <laughs> no, I don't know. In, in that case, I would I would ship you a proper microphone and audio interface and uh, show you how to do audio editing yourself because it's really not that hard to be honest. I mean, oh, that's I, a good I point. picked it up yeah. really quick, so it's just a matter of having the right tools to do the recording, and and that's one nice thing about computers now you got a full digital audio workstation just in a, yeah. a macbook air so yep absolutely okay well there you go maybe that this is the this is the beginning of of a fantastic project and when you wear heels to mass what is your acceptable overall height limitation and i i assume they mean the spikes you know the, yeah. the height of the spikes not your overall height I actually have a, a, a serious answer to this, and it's three and a half inches. Um, I have several pairs of shoes, um, which anymore, just because of where I live and the fact that I don't have a car anymore, so I have to walk wherever I go pretty much generally. Um, I don't I don't wear <laughs> what I consider to be my favorite pairs of shoes because they have four-inch heels. And... Um, I, I never used to wear those to, no, no, I never used to wear the four inches to mask because they were just, they were just a little bit much. And then you can, it, it's a, it's an absolutely a fair critique and a fair question to say, Anne, if it's, if it's too much to wear to mask, then you should, should you be wearing them at all? And I, I, that's absolutely a valid question. That's a valid point. And it, it occurred to me, occurs to me, and I hear you. I think it's a function of a combination of the length of, um, obviously, your skirt in combination with your shoe. This is going to get very girly here for a minute, super nerd. So, I mean, obviously, if you're wearing... Um, if you're wearing a skirt that is right at the knee, um, your heel can't be... Can't be um, four, four and a half inches, um, four and a half inches is also, it's getting, that's getting to where it's just completely inappropriate. And anymore, they're, they're making shoes now. I haven't bought a pair of high heeled shoes in years and years and years and years and years, because what the, the way they make high heeled shoes now is that there's a, so you've got the high heel and then in the front where the ball of your foot is, they make a platform so that there's like a one inch platform underneath the ball of your foot. And if you have a one inch platform underneath the ball of your foot in combination with a four and a half inch heel, the reason they do that is because it, then it makes it makes it effectively on your foot. It feels like you're only wearing a three and a half inch heel and it's, it's more comfortable in that sense but what it does is it turns it into this aesthetic where it looks like what I what I refer to as a stripper heel and those are I think those are really really trashy and I know there's people out there listening right now who are rolling their eyes and saying well Ann what are you talking about you're talking about wearing a four inch heel of course of course it's trashy but I think the ladies out there listening will know what I'm talking about when you've got that platform in the front of a high heeled shoe that looks like it's 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 not good at all at all so i don't ever buy shoes with that platform and wouldn't anymore if i ever bought a pair of shoes which i can't imagine anymore and i would i have plenty of shoes um but yes for me 
Oh, now, well, back to the length of the skirt thing. So if you're wearing, like, imagine ladies from the 1950s or the late 1940s wearing the beautiful dresses with the, you know, the waist comes in and then the skirt A-lines out, beautiful full skirt, and it's actually the length of the skirt is below the knee, which I think is called T-length. So you've got a T-length, beautiful A-line skirt or dress that you're wearing, then you can wear a higher heel because the length of your skirt is is lower. The whole the whole package then works together in a in a much better way. So it's largely contingent upon how how long your skirt is. And obviously, I wouldn't advocate anymore. I used to have some. I used to have skirts that were above the knee, but no more. No more above the knee. Above the knee is immodest. You got to be at least at the knee and then preferably below the knee, more like a T length. And then you can wear um, three and a half inch heel would be the maximum I would ever wear to mass. And then maybe going out to a, a nice dinner or something, I would get out of the cupboard some of my four inch heels and wear it with a nice T length skirt. Um, it's a, it's a beaut- it makes a beautiful silhouette, I think. But there you go. There's my extremely girly answer about high heel shoes. Well, and as a guy who is six and a half feet tall, one of the things that uh, I, I tend to notice is when uh, a woman is getting closer to my eye level in terms of height. And then one of the first things I'll look at is, okay, is she cheating? You know, look, at, look at her feet and see what kind of platform is <laughs> under the front of the foot. It's like, okay, you're really 5'3". Knock it off. That is correct. I am 5'4". Yeah. So when I wear, when I, back in the day when I would wear the four inchers, that would put me at five. Five eight, five eight, a cheating five eight. But there you go. And do you pray the liturgy of the hours? And if so, which books do you use? Um, I had the opportunity for a while to not the entire thing, and I, I wish I wish I did. Um, I for a period was living um, in fairly close proximity to a a group of Benedictine monks who prayed the entire office, obviously, from the monastic diurnal every day. And so I got into, for a while, I was doing lauds, mass, vespers, complem. And I, am I missing anything? Lauds, mass, vespers, and complem. No, that was, that was pretty much my day. Um, and then supplementing that with just running an eye over the the other hours, especially uh, matins, um, just to see if there was you know anything especially interesting or that could be pulled out and used as a as a post on the on the blog or anything like that. Um, and it was it was wonderful, and I miss it tremendously. Um, but I'm I I'm not skilled enough at the office to or disciplined enough. Let's be perfectly honest, or disciplined enough to do the whole thing alone by myself. I wish, oh, how I wish (laughs) that it's so painful. You look at churches and realize that so many of these churches were built and for centuries and centuries, um, decades and decades, as the case may be, that the office was prayed in these churches and that that was something that was that was available, uh, that people knew, people knew Vespers, people knew these hours, and it was being done um, every day. 
and it was available to the people. And now it just, it's almost impossible to find. There are online resources though. I think, um, like for example, I think, and I'm, I'm not sure about what the situation is. The monks of Norcia, they're the ones who had that terrible earthquake. They were, they were streaming their office online. Um, that was before the earthquake. I, I would suspect that they're probably back to doing that. I think they've made quite a bit of, of progress up there. And there are some other places, there are some other resources too. But, um, you know, it's just, it's it's such a pleasure to do it if you have, you know, if it's physically available to you and you have the time, you have the time to be able to do it. Um, it's it's absolutely wonderful and yields tremendous results and I highly recommend it. And I wish that I could get back into that somehow. I wish that somehow there was something close to me. Um, and, and not, not the new, not the liturgy of the minutes, not the new one. That's, that's a joke. You can do the entire day in like 45 minutes. I think the entire day. And remember there's eight, there's eight hours uh, hours of prayer in the day to, to this notion that, that you do this, uh, the entire day in 45 minutes, that's the liturgy of the minutes in, in new church. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the old school version. When you say liturgy of the minutes, that's, that's the tongue in cheek name for a liturgy of the hours, right? Yes. The, the new Paul, the sixth Novus Ordo liturgy of the hours is jokingly referred to now as liturgy of the minutes because there's just almost nothing to it. I had never heard that before, but I sort of figured it out. But that gets into my question here. Uh, the way I, I asked the question is exactly how the emailer phrased it. And I mm -hmm. was going to ask, you know, or to ask you to clarify it. You're not actually doing liturgy of the hours. You're doing the traditional divine office, correct? The divine office. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yep. That's what I was able to do for a while. And uh, what golden days those were. I really miss it. I really miss it. And again, uh, it's something that you have to have. Um, you have to have the time to be able to do it. So folks out there who are who are, you know, normal, normal American adults who are working a full time job. Um, it's going to be tough because it's not something you can do by taking a break during, you know, just during your normal hours at, at work. It's not, you can't, you can't rattle off, um, lauds in, in a 10 minute morning coffee break. You can't do that. It takes longer than, longer than that. So, um, it, it really is a luxury and would that it were that we had this again available because it's something that people that are retired can do. Um, you know, they, they've got the time Maybe even if they aren't dedicated to all eight hours during the day, they can do, you know, three or four hours, the, 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 the major hours during the day. And um, it, that's a, it's a wonderful thing for retired people to do. Um, and, you know, the whole notion that retired people, the elderly, they get older. And, you know, one of the things that really causes elderly people to go downhill is that they're not up, they're not active, they're not, they don't have a schedule, they're not doing something every day. Being, being able to go just to your, go to a, a church in your town that's nearby, or even <laughs> fantasy of fantasies, having a, a church just walking distance away from you, being able to walk in and pray lauds in the morning, 
go to mass, then come back in the afternoon and or early evening and pray vespers and then Compline. There, that's a almost a completely full day for an elderly person to have something to do, to be around people, to be part of a community. And of course, that's all gone. That's all gone. And we have to figure out other horrible things like TV and other horrible means of amusement. Um, and elderly people are kept isolated. And then it's just the entire notion of prayer in and of itself the more the merrier, the the more people that are doing this, including lay people, the better it is. And it's just is simply unavailable. In fact, I dare say, I think the vast, vast, vast majority of Novus Ordo Catholics, if you if you ask them, what is the divine office, they would have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. None, none, never heard of it, have no inkling that this thing even exists. And it's, you know, it's it's essentially paradigm number two for the church. What is the church supposed to be doing? It's supposed to be offering the Holy and August sacrifice of the Mass. And then number two, the church is supposed to be praying the divine office. I think the vast majority of Novus Orduists have no idea and have never heard of the divine office. And in fact, I think it would be fascinating. And this is something, I mean, you'd have to be God to do this, but wouldn't it be fascinating to ask Novus Ordo priests, do you know what the divine office is do, to know whether or not they actually pray, even the liturgy of the minutes? Do you actually pray the liturgy of the minutes? I mean, looking at this infestation of homosexuality, um, and just Freemasonry and uh, a general lack of supernatural faith, I personally am highly, highly suspect of the notion that um, that most of these Novus Ordo priests are in fact praying even the, e- even the liturgy of the minutes, which they're all supposed to do. I find it almost impossible to, to believe that men who have no supernatural faith and many of whom are active sodomites and obviously diabolical narcissists are taking that, even if it's just 45 minutes, are taking that 45 minutes out of their day and are actually praying even the liturgy of the minutes. I, I, I don't I don't believe this. I simply don't see any any evidence of this. First and foremost among them is Jorge Bergoglio. Um, he, he gives every indication that he has little to no familiarity with with scripture, with the divine office, with any of it. And the way he he twists and mangles scripture. Um I, I obviously I think he's malevolent, but I also think it's just because he has he has no no um understanding, interaction with any of it. The Psalms, the Psalms. He clearly doesn't know the Psalms. If if you're praying the Psalms and, and the the Psalms are the are the core of the divine office. I mean, that's, that's what it's about. You're essentially getting through all 150 Psalms every week. That's, that's what the point of at least the old one is. I don't know about the new one, but in fact, I know it's not all 150 in the new because they've taken out what are, what are referred to as the imprecatory Psalms, which are the ones that are saying that, you know, God is going to smite and cast down all of his enemies. So anything that talks about, you know, God smiting his enemies, um, new church, Novus Ordo, they, they took all of that out. So it's not even included on like a three year calendar. 
Nope, it's not even. Nope, it's not even in the uh, ABC um, um, reading rotation at Mass. In fact, there's. You know what else is not included anywhere in the ABC um, Mass readings in the lectionary in the Novus Ordo? The institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. It does not exist. If if you can even believe that, and you, it's one of those things that you have to look up. But sure enough, if you look it up, the institution of the Eucharist, even, I mean, East, in Holy Week, nothing, nothing. It's not there. Uh, t- uh, tell me that's not ma- malevolent. Tell me that's not malevolent. Um, but anyway, back to the office. And, well, I was going to ask know, the being, question, since, since the question was about uh, the liturgy of the hours, and you make a very good point that if you've got time, why why do the liturgy of the minutes or the super lightweight uh almost the bare minimum type prayer, go for the mm-hmm. real thing. But let's say you are somebody who has a day job, who has uh, a tiny princess and a bunch of kids and don't necessarily have a whole lot of free time. Is the liturgy of hours something to consider or would there be something alternative to look at? Maybe the little little office of the Blessed Virgin. The little office of the Blessed Virgin is exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, if you if you are pressed for time, you should do that. You should not do the Paul the Sixth thing. No way. I'm glad do, you. I'm glad you clarified that you were going to say it anyway because it, it just seemed like I was leading the witness here. So <laughs> checks in the mail, super nerd. Checks in the mail. <laughs> nope, but great minds were absolutely thinking alike. You should do. You should do the little office of the Blessed Virgin, and lots of people do that, and lots of people really get a lot out of it. Oh, and I suppose Obviously. It, it should go without saying, pray the rosary every single day. Mm-hmm. And that's that's another great point about the rosary is another name for the rosary is Our Lady's Psalter. And the reason for that is, is that if you do um, all three of the sets of mysteries, then what you're saying is you're saying 150 Hail Marys and kind of the intention is for lay people, especially back in the day when lay pe- a lot of lay people couldn't read, you know, um, that this was this was a proxy for the office in the sense that Our Lady would assign each Hail Mary to one of the Psalms, and so in a sense, this was a way for for the lay people to. Um, to pray the entire Psalter in a certain sense, you know, um, every day you only need to do the three sets, which takes, it takes me an hour. Yeah. About, about an hour to do all three sets of, of mystery. So you're going through 15 decades, 15 times 10 is 150. Hey, look at that. It's exactly the same number of Psalms that there are. So you're effectively doing this little, this little, um, proxy, Proxy office, proxy Psalter, and you can do that every day pretty easily. It's a great substitute. So for the people who say, why aren't you doing the Luminous Mysteries? I would say when you find Psalms 151 through 200, come back and talk to me about that because the original 15 decades, that's actually scriptural. Exactly. And what's your fantastic line that I love so much? <laughs> is it is it okay for me to pray the Luminous Mysteries? And Super Nerd's response was, yes, just make sure you also pray the Rosary as well. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you mentioned some time ago that you study the Bible in Latin. Can you recommend any books to help a normal person learn Latin or liturgical Latin or biblical Latin? 
Uh, I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not a Latinist by any means. The Latin, the Latin that I have is almost completely a result of just going to mass every day. And if you go to mass every day and you have your side by side missile, you're, you're going to start picking things up pretty quick. I've had, uh, let me think if I had any formal Latin instruction. No, I've had no formal Latin instruction. Um, one of the things that I did do right away was I bought, it was really expensive, but it was awesome. I bought an Oxford English Latin dictionary. Um, so I, ha- I had one of those, but then, of course, I, I had to donate it when I um, went to live in the van down by the river. But now online, I mean, as long as you have access to the Internet, um, you can and and latin content on the internet and even even the latin in google translate google tra- google translates latin is still not not great but i mean just even 5 years ago it was basically unusable it's gotten a lot better um and there's a lot now there's a lot more latin resources and good latin dictionaries and and so on and so forth on the internet um but it, you the first thing you need to do is you need to learn English grammar so that you can, um, so that when you see discussions of, of Latin, it's, you know, it's a grammatically, um, intense and precise language. And I think that's one of the main problems with especially young American, uh, students who are trying to learn a language like Latin that is grammatically intense, um, is that, most American students today have have absolutely no instruction at all in grammar. If you're lucky if an American undergrad today knows what a noun is, knows what a verb is, knows what an adjective is. They're fuzzy on what adverbs are, um, much less what is, you know, a direct object, an indirect object, et cetera, et cetera. It just isn't taught anymore at all. Um, and so especially Americans are just clueless. So I think probably the first step you should do is, is brush up on your English grammar. Um, to that point, I will, I will mention when I took Latin for the first time, I was in ninth grade the year prior, we had a very intensive English grammar course. And mm-hmm. I remember getting a low a low to mid a or something like that, but it was mainly just force of memorization that I, I got all that. And then the following year, taking Latin, all of that grammar retroactively made 100% sense learning it in another language. And for those of you who are looking at Latin textbooks, I I did the Henley course. That's the one where they teach you to read. uh, They build up to reading Caesar's Gallic Wars. But to Anne's point, it really is a you've got to get the understanding of grammar down uh, mm-hmm. to, to be able to learn Latin. Because one of the fun things about Latin is you can take the words in any sentence and, and literally scramble them up because the order of the words, yes, there, there's a nominal ordering that words are supposed to go in, but because each of the words has an inflection that indicates uh, what its purpose in the sentence is, you can scramble the words up and the sentence doesn't really change meaning. It may be a little odd to a Latin speaker if you can find any of those still running around, but uh the idea is that the, the words carry the inflection with them that they can literally be scrambled up. And we, we did have some exercises along those lines where you take an, an, an otherwise normal Latin sentence, scramble the letters, and then you're, you're supposed or scramble the words, I should say. And then you're supposed to write it out in the order it should have been written in correctly. So it, it is something you have to take a serious um, 
appreciation for grammar to to begin to understand Latin. Right. And Latin has how many cases does it have? Eight cases. Eight uh, or nine? Eight. I think it's eight, isn't it? Polish is nine and Latin is eight, if I'm not mistaken. But um, what a case is, and, you know, the average American has absolutely no idea what this is. Um, the best example of a case in the English language is a, a case is when the ending of a word changes um, contingent upon how it is used in a sentence. And so the best example of this to make you understand what a case is in English is the possessive. So when you, when you, when you have a word and then in English you want to turn that in the, into the possessive, you change the ending of the word by doing apostrophe S. That's a case. Okay, in Latin, everything is like that. Imagine if every part of speech pretty much had that sort of a deal where you could take any word and you could put eight different endings on it. And what that ending would do is tell you what that word's function was in, in a given sentence, just exactly the way that we all know that apostrophe S indicates possession. But almost everything in Latin is like that. And that's why it's so precise. Um, and, uh, again, that's why it's so grammatically rich and 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 such a rich language. And it's why it's it's one of the reasons why it's the language of the church. It's precisely that precision that makes it just perfect for for the church and for its ecclesial function, because, you know, in English, it's real easy for things to get ambiguous. And, well, that could be taken to mean this or it could be taken to mean that. There's all kinds of ways that you can get into into kind of gray areas of of interpretation with just simple English text, for example. Latin quashes all of that down. So they're just when you write something in Latin, there's just no wiggle room, hardly at all. And that's why it's so wonderful for to be the official language of the church. And it's also, um, just want to make a point. I heard this discussion the other day, and, and I think it's good to get it out there, um, is it, Latin is called a dead language. And what that means, and again, why that's really good for the church, is that it is a language that is or, or should be set there's no, it's not like English. Think about how much your spoken English has changed just in the last 20 years or the last 40 years. Think, think how many words have come in, how many, you know, slangy usages, so on and so forth. Think how much just your own English in your lifetime has changed. Latin is is dead in the sense is that there should be no further evolution of it. And there are some people, there are some Latinists out there who are actually trying to, yes, make Latin, you know, making up new words to, to match or for, well, words to match, you know, the modern day and age and, and modern slang and all that. And a lot of Latinists are saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Le make it, let it be a dead language precisely so that when we're composing things and saying things, especially ecclesial things, today in Latin, 
let the language remain dead and non-evolving precisely so exactly the same meaning can be transmitted centuries hence, assuming that, you know, we last that long and there isn't some supernatural event. Um, we want to be able to have this meaning and this precision in communication to carry on through the centuries as it has before up until now. I mean, you can read something that was composed many, 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 many centuries ago in the church, in Latin, and and because the language is dead, you know that what they meant to say a thousand years ago is how we're reading it today. It carries straight through. Um, and so obviously English is not a dead language. So many languages are not, almost all languages are not dead language. The fact that Latin is dead is, is one of its strengths and one of the reasons why it should be used and why it should be defended. Dead doesn't mean nobody speaks it. There, there have been classicists all over the world all along, even within, you know, the 20th century. There are still people who were going to university, majoring in classics, learning Latin, learning classical Greek, another dead language. And there have been uh, classicists all along. Now, most of them, um, sadly stopped speaking the language, certainly weren't speaking it at home with their kids, although there I, I do now know people who speak Latin at home with their children and are raising their children to be bilingual um, with Latin as a mother tongue. And obviously, you have to be quite a scholar and be pretty fluent, obviously, to do that. Uh, but yeah, it's possible, and there are people who can speak it. But understand that Latin was spoken, even even when it was considered a dead language in the sense that it was not it was no longer evolving, mutating, and changing. It was spoken widely up until uh, the middle of the 20th century because everyone in within the context of the church, anyone who goes to Rome, okay, let's say a Portuguese Catholic meets a Polish Catholic in Rome, what language do they speak to each other in? And it, it ain't English, baby. That's all That's all new. That's all an advent of the last 50, 60 years, the post-war era, really. They would, although they totally speak to each other in Latin, everybody was educated in Latin. Everyone had been, been to university, been through seminary in Latin. Um, you know, there are people still still very much alive today who remember going to going to university in Rome going to the the Gregorianum or whatever all of the classes were in Latin everything was in Latin now those guys are getting up there in in age obviously now but there's still lots of guys who remember going to Rome being educated the same thing you could go to France you could go to France and you know if if a pole goes to France or a check goes to France it's not a problem because everybody's speaking Latin in the universities. So there wasn't this sense of, oh, my goodness, I'm not going to be able to talk to anyone. That It was exactly the opposite. Everyone could could communicate. So um, that's that's the glory of it. I've and, got to chime in on, on the phrase Latin is a dead language because – and I've, I've made this point on a previous podcast – it is a perfect example in the English language how words drift in meaning – Mm -hmm. Pretty quick. In fact, English speakers will probably also recognize the idiom dead as a doornail, which has nothing to do with being alive versus not alive. It's a, it's a property being fixed. And the word dead 
traditionally, you know, I don't know how many years you have to go back now, but it, it was always synonymous with fixed. So Latin yeah. as a dead language is not is not an antithesis to being alive, but it's a reference to being fixed. And I have wondered for a long time, it's just my own personal opinion, whether or not Latin having is precisely the same meaning now as when Julius Caesar wrote his diary of his conquests, whether or not that was trumped up, pun intended, or mm. whether it was literal. Um whether or not the fact that Latin has had no drift in meaning over this entire time is a divine attribute that the language is being protected because the Catholic faith is recorded in that language. And the same thing with Koine Greek. Modern Greek does mutate and change, but traditional Koine Greek, the the um, uh, classical, classical Greek, Greek, yeah, that that does not change, and uh, modern Greek speakers will still learn Koine Greek and, and realize that is something that doesn't change. Also, um, Hebrew that is spoken in um, in Israel today is not traditional Hebrew. Uh, mm-hmm. A coworker of mine, not currently, but but a, a former coworker, current colleague of mine, is from Israel, speaks modern Hebrew. And in fact, he even makes the point, it's modern Hebrew. It's not even the same uh, alphabet. It's close, but it's similar. And, and um, he says it is not the same thing as traditional Hebrew, but certainly if you speak modern Hebrew, you can you can get to, to classic Hebrew a lot easier. So right. the, the point I wanted to get at is you're, you're making the phrase there talking about it being a dead language is a fixed language. The meaning will not move, which is why up until 100 years ago, a lot of places in the world, uh, legal contracts were written in Latin. Mm-hmm. Because no matter what the language did, you could always go back to the authoritative reference in Latin to figure out what were the terms of the contract. Yep, exactly. So uh, what are other – we use the word dead, um, dead reckoning. Dead, I was wondering dead, if you'd bring dead that dead up. Rights. Well, um, yeah, dead, it means fixed. Dead reckoning is actually short for deduced reckoning, and I have uh, standing to talk about that because my job in the Navy was navigation, and that that was uh-huh. one of the things we did was deduced reckoning. If you're at position A, you're going a certain course in speed, then you can you can bet you know, without taking into condition um, set and drift of the ocean currents, you're going to be in these locations at so many hours hence. You're deducing deducing where you're going. Mm, okay. And it's 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 deduced reconnoitering, if I'm not mistaken, dead reckoning. I we've got some squids listening. They can bust my chops on that one if I got the second <laughs> part wrong. All right. So there's the there's the Latin answer. Yes, I think we beat that one to death. <laughs> um, should, we should mention um, the Douay Reams, um, drbo dot org. Um, I use that multiple times a day, every day. And then the, what it is is it's the Douay Reams Bible, which is the authoritative translation of St. Jerome's Vulgate into English. So that's that's your closest one step removed, basically, um, uh, translation from St. Jerome into our modern English. Um, it, and if you go side by side with the King James, it's good. It's it's close but it's not exactly. There are some things in the King James that are that are different, and so I strongly recommend the Douay Reams. I think that's still still on paper legally. The Douay Reams is is officially what um, Anglophones are supposed to be using in the church for as the ultimate the ultimate translation. And then the sweet thing about that website drbo.org is you go. And um, at the top, you know, you navigate to whatever chapter you you want, 
And then one of the options you have at the top is you can have both languages. So each verse is is completely set apart, you know, with a hard return with first the Latin and then underneath the English. And it makes it so easy to go through and do a word for word comparison and say, okay, what word exactly is being used um, for this English word and vice versa. And it makes it so easy to find stuff. And I use it all the time. So drbo.org is the Douay Reims Bible. I think that DRBO must stand for Douay Reims Bible Online, I suppose. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I can verify that's exactly what it stands for. There you go. And, you know, talking about languages and wondering why would the English, the authoritative English translation of the Bible have been done in France? Well, it's because the King James Bible was being done in England at the time. It wasn't exactly looked upon kindly for to be Catholic in England. So the mm. authoritative translation of the Bible into English happened in France. And Reims, there's the amazing cathedral there. Um Reims is where they would crown the French king, isn't it? Yes. I'd have to look. Yeah, that's least, where they would. At least some of them. And Reims is in the is in the for those of you who are interested in such things. Reims is where champagne is made. That's the that's the relatively very small geographical area where actual real French champagne is made. It's around Reims. So there you go. Okay, now for the serious interrogation. And okay. Are you now, or have you ever been, a woman who wears pants? Yes, absolutely, yeah. And Trousers. What, and, and what are we to think of women who wear pants? Is it fair to draw moral conclusions about women who identify as traditional Catholic but wear pants? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm in trouble. I mean, during the week, in the winter, not every day, but sometimes, and especially if it's cold, yeah, I still, I still wear I still have some jeans and and some pants that I wear. But here's my rule. This is my new thing. Talking about, you know, evolving and hopefully advancing in sanctity. Um, I do not wear pants anymore unless I'm wearing some sort of a coat or jacket that covers my butt. Seriously. Um, I, I had I'd heard enough times from um Men And in, in fact, I think I even heard this one time during a sermon, or maybe it was a, an adult catechism class, where the priest, who's completely heterosexual, um, said the deal, the deal with women, there's two things. There's the, there's the bosom, which is obviously very, very visually provocative to men. But what a lot of women don't realize is that the other thing that's really, really visually provocative to men, and we as women, we just really don't appreciate this, is if you see a woman from the back and she's wearing trousers and you can just, yeah, I mean, you can see her butt and you can see where the legs connect to to the pelvis and you can see all that. Uh, this is this is a big visual thing for men that really provokes them. So, yeah especially in the wintertime when it's really cold. Yes, I do wear um, trousers, not every day, but sometimes. But always, 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 if I'm wearing trousers, I'm wearing a coat, a jacket, a duster sweater, which I have a lot of those right now. Love those during during the, the cold weather months, um, which is a duster sweater. It's, just, it's like a cardigan, except it's long. And they're really flattering, too. You get them cut right, and they just... 
it also it almost makes you look like you're wearing an a-line dress of a sort of um really flattering the key is <laughs> as funny as it sounds to say cover your butt cover your butt and that's how i look at it so i mean and there's there's almost kind of at a certain point if you've got a jacket or a duster sweater on it's almost like you're wearing kind of like a tunic and leggings at that point um and the jeans that I do have nowadays are, um, they are the, they have a little bit of stretch in them. So they, they're, they are almost like wearing leggings underneath a coat tunic or a coat dress. So yeah, I do still wear pants. Yes. Next question. And you have some of the most magnificent pictures of sacred art on your website. What is your source or sources? The internet. <laughs> search engine <laughs> it really it's it's not mysterious guys you it's the saint of the day type in the saint the name of the saint and the word art and see what comes up uh, or the name of a saint or the name of a feast and um renaissance something like that um learn how to use search engines they're very they're easy to use they're getting better and better all the time um uh, events in our Lord's life, events in our lady's life. If you need to find an image of something, type it in plus the word art or Renaissance art or something like that. And it'll come right up. If you know the, the artist, if you have a specific thing in mind, um, you know, event in our Lord's life plus Guido Rainey, boom, it's going to come right up. It's, it's not hard to find. So there you go. Just simple, simple search engines. And and being aware of the fact that there is more than well, there's more than three search engines actually. Maybe I'll have to, maybe that'll be my responsibility for the show notes is to put together some links for uh, search engines and some tips on how to use them better. Mm, very good. I think people would get a lot out of that because that's that's the thing I noticed just in looking at my email box and interacting with people. I I really get the feeling that there's a lot of people out there who just really don't know how to use search engines effectively. Um, the other tip for using a search engine that is just invaluable is if you take a search term and put it inside quotation marks in, in a search engine, that's telling the search engine that you need an absolute perfect match on that term, whatever it is. And that just knocks out a lot of the false results that you can get. The other thing you can do, and I first started doing this um, in terms of hunting for plagiarism, is you can take um, an entire sentence or even maybe two sentences of if it's if you're looking for someone plagiarizing you or you're looking for someone plagiarizing something else or whatever, or if you're you know a, a college professor and you're looking for plagiarism like for example, in stuff that your students are handing in. Take, find a, a sentence or two sentences of, of unique prose. I mean, obviously not, not sentences that are so pedestrian that they could be repeated many times. Completely unique sentence. And the thing that always blows my mind about being a writer and so forth is that almost on a daily basis, if you're a writer, you are composing sentences that have never, ever been spoken or written ever before in human history. And you, uh, we're doing that every day. And I'm, that's just a little aside. That's just a little tangent, but that blows my mind. But anyway, the, one, one of the things that that's, that allows us to do is if you do a search engine of a two-sentence field, 
put it in quotation marks, put it in your search engine, hit return. If that has ever been written before or if or if this is plagiarized, it'll come right up and you'll be able to say, oh, look, this was pulled word for word out of this blog post or, you know, this um, this document or whatever that was posted online. Uh Oh, OK, now we see. And for someone like me, um, I use it all the time in order to find things that I have written that, you know, I just, <laughs> I can't quite find anymore. Um, I use, if I type in Barnhart and then two keywords from some piece that I wrote years and years and years ago, even stuff, um, I mean, the barnhart.biz website, when we changed over, um, it, 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 it commences now at January of 2013. But I mean, there's years of archive behind that. And a lot of what I wrote before that, obviously, because that's when I was doing the Koran burnings and all the MF global reportage and all of that. Um, that's no longer on barnhart.biz, but it still exists out there on the internet. So if I need to find something that I wrote a long time ago, I put in barnhart and then like two key words and I can generally find it almost immediately. So, there's there's things you can do and if i'm looking for if i'm looking for plagiarism or not even plagiarism but syndication um at, because i there are certain circumstances in which i certainly don't mind when people just lift me in to, in, in completely you know put a link put a link back generally um but you know i my stuff ends up on free republic it ends up on western rifle shooters blah 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 Okay, all you have to do is do one of these in quotation marks searches for something that if I'm looking for my own stuff that I've written and then lo and behold, boop, up, up it'll pop and I can see who's been who's been syndicating me and where where my stuff has ended up. So, yeah, that's that would be really cool super nerd if you could do a how how to use search engines primer or link to something that's like that. Oh, there are at least five or six really good um, web resources out there. Another handy one, especially when um, when something big in the news breaks. So um, I don't know why Sandy Hook comes to mind, but uh, in, in the days right after Sandy Hook, uh, if you did a uh, Google or Bing search uh, on, on the term Sandy Hook, of course, you get flooded with all the news. Well, then mm -hmm. you can also go into an advanced search tool and, and uh, limit the the date range on your search. So if it's right. a week after Sandy Hook, you can say, okay, give me the hit results from a month back and then three years previous. And exactly. you're, you're going to get in a, a you're going to get as different as a, a of a set of results as if you search Tiananmen Square in the United States as versus China. Exactly. Or uh, imagine doing a Bing search on Jorge Bergoglio before the tw the 13th of March of 2013 or whatever it was. It's going to be completely different. A lot of it's going to be in Spanish. I mean, you're going to get that that backstory, you know, whereas if you just type his name in right now, it, it would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of hits. You couldn't you couldn't sift through it and get, OK, where's the old stuff? Where's the stuff before he usurped? I want to hear the backstory. You can do that with the date range in, in these search engines. It's really easy. What is your, and the church's, position on adult stem cell therapy? Um, as long as it's not embryonic, um, I believe it's it's all good. So um, the 
adult stem cells, um, the umbilical stem cells. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think they've generated any useful positive therapies using embryonic stem cells. I think all of the stem cell therapies that are that have been developed and are in use now are adult stem cell therapies or um, umbilical cord stem cell therapies, which if I'm if I'm not mistaken, those are those are completely morally licit. The problem is obviously the embryonic stem cells. The, and this is a whole can of worms. I mean, you have to you have to murder an extant human being, an embryo, in order to to harvest these stem cells. But even even before that, and this speaks to in vitro fertilization, I think there's a lot of people out there that are really, really fuzzy and have not sat and thought at all about in vitro fertilization. The whole it's a very, very feminine, um, um, emotional, sentimental uh thought about in vitro fertilization oh you get people get a little baby people get a little baby um what about all of the embryos that are necessarily created in this that you can't have i mean you generate a dozen embryos and then what do you do with the ones that you don't you don't implant well they have to be murdered at some point or held in this in this existential state of of frozenness which is which is just completely evil but even before that even before that you have to commit mortal sin in order to get um the sperm that's used to fertilize the eggs that are harvested from a woman presumably to do this where is this sperm coming from and how how is it how is it being um harvested Mortal sin, masturbation, um, you know, manual sodomy, whatever it is, um, it, it is a mortally sinful act just to spill the seed, the ejaculate that's needed in order to f- fertilize a human egg. So you're starting right out of the chute with a mortal sin in order to even begin to get the process going. The whole thing is a complete disaster. Um, so you know, getting off on a tangent a little bit, but it, it kind of does speak to the stem cell thing. And again, it's, it's a very feminine, um, a sentimental sort of a, sort of a paradigm. You know, they trot Michael J. Fox out and, oh, he was, I had a crush on him back in the day when he was in back to the future and on family ties. And now he has Parkinson's disease. And why wouldn't you want to do anything you can to cure Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's disease, just let them have the embryonic stem cells, except, you know, there haven't been any therapies generated from embryonic stem cells that even help. Putting aside for a moment the questions that we were just talking about, about the mortal sinfulness of the paradigm in general, it's another propaganda point. Now, if you can generate therapies from adult stem cells, which they do, and if you can generate therapies from um, uh, uh, umbilicus, from umbilical cord blood, fantastic. That's great. I I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. But uh, it's this business of creating human beings, committing mortal sin to create human beings in a Petri dish, and then having to harvest, having to slaughter these human beings in order to yield these quote unquote therapeutic products, which I don't think even exist. 
So I, I was it was sometime in the last six months, and if I can find the the reference to this, I'll include it in the show notes. But um, don't please don't get upset if I can't find it, and so I don't include it. But it was an interview with a doctor who specializes in adult stem cell therapies. And he made the point that fetal stem cells and adult stem cells, the the problem that a lot of people have is that he uses the term stem cell when they are radically different. Fetal stem cells want to become babies, whereas mm. adult stem cells are specifically about recovery and rebuilding. Right. And so the, the purposes of these two things, they share a name and that's all they share. They, they have radically different purposes of, of what they do biologically. Mm -hmm. His point was, among other things, they really ought to have different names. Great point. I'd never heard that before, but that's a slightly important precision. So there you go. To paraphrase Mark Twain, it's like the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Mm. Similar names, but not even close to the same concept. (laughs) Indeed. And why don't you speak more about the disaster of the church allowing its members to believe in theistic evolution and the dangers of Darwinism? Why don't you say exactly what I want you to say every time? Uh, this is this is a very common problem that people who are public and on the internet and whatever have is that it's, you know, these emails, why don't you say this? Why didn't you say it exactly like this? Why don't you talk about my pet my pet concern, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I don't know. Yes, yes. Evolution is a scourge on humanity. It's, 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 it's terrible. I, I don't talk about that enough. I don't talk about abortion enough. Um, that this is an interesting thing. There's been a guy over the past, I don't know, 18 months or so, who, um, you know, he's one of these people where pro-life is his religion, which is a big problem. That's a big problem. I mean, I think he goes to Catholic Mass, but truth be told, there are people who get into the pro-life thing, and pro-life then becomes the religion. And so every once in a while, I'll get the email that you're a complete phony, you you never talk about abortion. You never talk about this. I'm the only person who's doing any good. I'm the person who's going out and, you know, doing the sidewalk interventions in front of the abortuaries. You're, you're not even Catholic. Da, 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 da. Look, I can't, I can't talk about absolutely everything. Can't cover every, every corner, every base. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Evolution is terrible. In fact, I think I, I, I started out um, my kind of my <laughs> public, uh, not not even Catholic, because I was an undergraduate. We had to give a presentation um, when I took undergraduate biology at K State, and the presentation that I gave was against evolution. Um, it it could only be like a. I don't know, a seven or 10 minute presentation. So obviously this was, it wasn't in depth at all, but mine was about um, why evolution is wrong. I went through just through a couple of very simple proof sets. Um, I believe the the primary one that I used is that if you're talking about random chances in terms of constructing an amino acid and then constructing two amino acids that could interact with each other, there is an, if you took the entire mass of the entire universe and converted it into carbon, 
there there would not be enough carbon in the entire universe to feed the number of repetitions in order to get by chance just a random construction of two amino acids that could interact with each other. And I think that was kind of the, that was the primary gist of my presentation. But then I finished with the moral considerations of what, what are the societal and cultural ramifications of telling human beings that they are in fact animals. And I spoke about sexual morality and understand I was a, I was a sophomore at K state and that's who all the other kids in the class were freshmen and sophomores at K state. And I'm standing there talking about how evolution has led you to believe that you are an animal and therefore that, that sexuality is a purely animal thing and that you can behave like animals and so on and so forth. I had K State's a pretty big school. I think there's, I don't know, twenty eight thousand enrolled students during the fall and fall and spring semesters on campus. I had people coming up to me on campus, saying, "I I was in the I was in the hall during your biology presentation about evolution, and that was really awesome." I think they were just shocked to hear anybody talking about. You know, speaking against evolution, first of all, and then tying it into sexual morality. People were just, I think people were flabbergasted by that. Um, and and it's stuck in people's minds. That's an interesting thing. You do something like that and it sticks in people's minds and maybe it won't bear fruit for decades and decades and decades in their life. But they'll always remember, I remember that, that kind of crazy chick in college going off about how evolution has convinced us all that we're animals and that there shouldn't be any sort of any rules or sexual morality. Maybe after they've been through some, you know, disastrous ad- adultery event in the, in their own marriage or something like that, or watch their kids now, um, 20, 25 years on, they've now had kids and they've watched their kids descend into this. And they'll, they'll remember something that they heard decades ago and tie the two things together and start asking questions as is as is very common you know people are tend to be extremely liberal and stupid when they're young and then you know time and experience and and life tends to make you hopefully a little bit more intelligent you start putting two and two together with regards to these things so yeah i don't talk about evolution enough you know my my shtick on on the website right now i mean at first it was cattle, then it was, you know, broad economics and financial corruption. And then it became and then it went into Islam. And then it went into mainstream American political commentary. And then obviously, now the focus is on the church and what's going on in the church and hopefully preaching a little gospel too. Should I talk about evolution more? Yes. Should I talk about abortion more? Yes, absolutely. Let's start a list of the things that I should talk about more. Um, but you can't you can't say everything all the time, and you certainly can't say everything in exactly the way that Reader X wants you to see it. So I beg your indulgence. And perfect segue. You had no clue where I'm going with this, but uh, speaking of indulgences, nah. where, where did the indulgences go? Asks a, a reader. In older genera- in older editions of a prayer book that I have, the indulgences listed with certain prayers are more than in later uh, revisions. And it's my understanding that some indulgences have been done away with altogether. Where are they going? 
They were abolished by Paul VI Montini when the asteroid hit in the early to mid-1960s. That's the short answer. Um, the long answer, how much time do you have? The long answer, how much time do I have? They're, they're still out there. Our Lord's mercy is infinite. Um, they, there are all kinds of things that you can do. Um, but don't sit around and wait or expect for Novus Ordo Church, for Bergoglio Church, anti-church, whatever you want to call it. Don't sit around and wait for these things. The only um, example I can think of in terms of an indulgence that that has come out of the Bergolian anti-papacy is that he did do that year of mercy in all of those holy doors. And yes, I availed myself of it. This is actually a really good point of precision. Even though he's an anti-pope, there are certain uh, juridical things that when they are done in the context of the church, even if you've got something like an anti-pope or something like that, and there's some flaw, um, the concept is called ecclesia suplet, the, ch- the church supplies, the church supplies jurisdiction. Our Lord is not a jerk. If anti-Pope Bergoglio is out there and lo, all these millions of people mistakenly think that this guy is the Pope, but he says, okay, we're going to have all these holy doors and this year of mercy and all that. God is not a jerk. And so, of course, the church, the supernatural church supplies the jurisdiction. And of course, going through those holy doors, of course, our Lord would would shower you with his mercy if you did that and you did it correctly, properly, confessed your sins, um, you know, detachment from sin, all all of the the conditions there that are that are required. You can't just go. It's not a superstitious magic charm thing. Oh, I go walk through that magic door and, you know, all my sins are forgiven and I get out of purgatory or, or whatever, whatever it is, you know. It's it's about what what is your disposition? Do you really intend? Are you really sorry for your sins? Have you gone and sacramentally confessed them? Are you genuinely resolved to stop committing the sins that you're committing? Well, of course, all those holy doors then are a conduit of grace, even though they were promulgated by an anti-pope. The church supplies the jurisdiction, ecclesia suplet. That that is the that is the concept that's in play here. Um, but super nerd, I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to talk about resources for finding indulgences and and so on and so forth. Well, actually, the question kind of um, confuses me a little bit because I'm thinking of in, in my older missiles, 1945 edition. Obviously, these are. I, I never stopped to really think about the fact that uh, the, the listings on here may have been either abrogated or curtailed, abridged. But it was something that when I saw this question, and I, honestly, I forgot about it until just now. I was copying the questions in, into the spreadsheet to ask you now. But I don't know what the answer to this is. Um, this is something I want to look up. So hopefully between now, when we're recording this and when it goes live, this is since this is one of the... Uh, canned episodes for for having something on hand later. I'm going to see if I can find some information to have ready for the show notes on this. But okay, as of right now, I don't know. 
The other thing we should mention is that just the word indulgence has been turned into kind of this dirty word because there's this whole, oh, people were buying indulgences. You go and you slip you slip the priest a gold coin or whatever and you know, okay, here's your indulgence. You're, you get out of, all your sins are forgiven and you get out of purgatory or whatever it is. And then the, the guy runs back out the door and within a matter of minutes is in bed with his mistress or whatever. Um, at, at, what, was there ever, has there ever been corruption um, attached to this? Of course there has. That doesn't, that doesn't nullify the validity of the concept. The fact that people abuse something doesn't nullify the validity of the concept. Our Lord's mercy is infinite, and he is desirous to absolutely shower it down upon us. And it's there for the taken. And if if the church says, here, here is this, um, here's this indulgence, here's this partial indulgence, plenary indulgence, there's all kinds of different indulgences, and you do it, and you do it in good faith, then our Lord is there with his arms open, just ready to shower that mercy down upon you and everyone else. Um, so this notion, it, it does get really, um, I think it comes from, you know, the Protestant total depravity, the Calvinism, et cetera, et cetera, that just everybody's damned to hell and and it's almost a sense, you know, they, the, the, the Protestants, they don't want that, that Calvinistic um, everybody's damned to hell thing. They don't want that party ruined. You know, they don't, they don't want to hear about mercy. All they're concerned about is their ideology of total depravity and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's the, the opposition to this is, you know, just rooted in this Protestant ideology, which then leads to everybody's damned to hell anyway, everybody's totally depraved. Well, then in that case, just do what you want. It's only one logical jump from this Protestant total depravity heresy into complete libertinism and just people screwing and stealing and and every other species of sin you can imagine because if you if you have this false satanic ideology that you're going to hell anyway and that you are created evil and you are intrinsically evil and you are totally depraved and you and you actually believe this then yeah you're just you're going to do anything and actually if you think about it the whole notion of indulgences is combating that. It's combating that. It, indulgences are saying, no, let, let's get you back to what to what you're supposed to be. Let's get you back on the right track and let's let's really let's clean your slate so that you can so that you can now move forward with a clean slate. And um, that that is an attack on the Protestant heresy, um, the Lutheran, the Calvinism, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So that's why they hate it, and that's that's why they're against it. Obviously, the corruption of it. I mean, just selling it. I mean, it's it's almost it's very similar to the corruption in terms of um, degrees of nullity. Where up until just recently, the Kennedys would waltz into whatever sodomite bishop's office. You know, who 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 in such Kennedy wants to marry the nanny that he's been carrying on an affair with? Okay, he whips out his his checkbook, writes a check for a quarter of a million dollars to the bishop's fund, and then and then lo and behold, 
six months later, here comes this degree of nullity. And six months and one day later, this Kennedy marries the 19 year old nanny that he's been having an affair with. Um, yeah, that sort of corruption, but that, that doesn't nullify the entire paradigm that there are very rare cases where a degree of nullity is warranted. Obviously we've had this discussion, we've done podcasts and we've done interviews that, that, you know, what's being done today is wildly, wildly corrupt, the rubber stamping. And of course the corruption up until a few decades ago of the rich people being able to buy annulments, of course that was going on. Of course it was. Nobody's debating that, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's the same thing with um, with indulgences and, you know, degrees of nullity. That's kind of that's a that's a negative concept in total. The concept of of indulgences is is it's a function of our Lord's mercy. It's a it's a first level derivative of our Lord's infinite mercy. So you certainly don't throw that baby Jesus out with the bathwater um, just because it, it had been abused in, in years past. Well, going along with the topic of corruption, uh, the, the the last question here goes right along with this. As a practicing Catholic, what should I do to show my disgust with what has happened in the church? Is withholding my weekly donation really the best way to go? Um, well, certainly you should not be, and I've I've written and been talking about this for quite some time now. You shouldn't be giving money to the the bishop to the the diocesan slush fund, the chancery, whatever you want to call it, call it, call it, call it. Um, my, my thing is um, almost exclusively now either in kind, so usually that, that means physical labor of some sort, something like that, or directly to priests or directly to religious. You know, you can, you can buy people food, you can buy people things that they need, you can, you can, tithe directly to people like that. I would never, ever give any money um, now where I thought even a cut of it would go to to the archdiocese, would go to the bishop. No way. Absolutely not. Um, now, having said that, what in terms of what's going on right now, in terms of the Catholic Me Too and the, the exposure of the fact that all... Um, <laughs> A, a, a massive plurality of these prelates today are in fact sodomites and, and active sodomites. Um, and I need to write, I need to write an essay on this and maybe by the time this gets posted, it'll be done. Um, in terms of cutting off collections and so forth, you have to understand that while you should do that, and that is definitely something that should be done that is not going to put the screws to any of them because understand, especially in North America, especially in the United States, how does how does the institutional church generate its money, generate its cash flow now? It's not from tithing. That's not what it is. As I have talked about at length many, many times, the two biggest sources of revenue and cash flow now for the institutional Catholic Church is in its its capacities as NGOs, as a non-governmental organization, specifically as a for-profit middleman in the healthcare delivery services market. They're standing in between, um, you know, individuals, patients, and either insurance companies or more commonly the federal government. Okay, and they're they're billing at a massive markup and a massive profit, um, you know, healthcare delivery, 
and they're making just enormous, enormous, enormous amounts of money. Why in the world do the Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth have a billion dollar balance sheet and a Fitch rating? A Fitch rating is what people who issue um, issue bonds, you know, so you know the quality and the risk level of a bond that you might buy. Why do the Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth have a billion dollar portfolio and a Fitch rating? Because they're in the healthcare delivery services and hospital game, and they, it's just money hand over fist. The other thing, the massive, massive um, way that they are now, just within the last few years, within the last decade, really, that the church, both in the United States and also in Europe, the institutional church, is making money is in human trafficking human trafficking, all of this crap about importing these musloids and these invasion forces. And of course, obviously, all of the the Mexicans, Central Americans, and also terrorists coming across the Mexican border in the United States. All of that, the church is and you know, they're having they're doing these stunt masses on the border and open borders, this, that and the other. These these faggot prelates, they don't they don't care about any of these people. They don't care at all about any of these people. What they want is they want the massive payday that is coming from the New World Order government, from the Soros, if you want to call it that New World Order secular political regime that is paying the institutional church bounties, essentially, on all of this human trafficking that they're doing. It's hundreds of millions of dollars per year in the United States alone. It is one of the biggest money-making rackets that's that the institutional church has has ever done. It's it's getting to the point where it's right up there with the healthcare delivery healthcare services delivery racket that they're running too. Um so it's it's those two things. You guys out there saying, well, I'm not going to contribute anymore to the bishops to the bishops fund or I'm not going to put any money at all in the collection plate. Um, they they laugh. They're giggling and saying, oh, isn't that adorable? I mean, I, it, you shouldn't give them any money. But you have to understand that on a percentage basis of revenues, it, it's not going to have really any effect. Think about it. Most Catholics don't go to mass, guys. Most Catholics don't tithe in any significant way. I mean, this this is this is laughable. This is a joke. The big money is in the healthcare services racket and in the human trafficking. Um, and so that's where you have to hit them. That's where you'd have to get at them. And that's not going to happen because the Soros machine, the 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 deep state, they want all of that to continue, which is why you're not going to see the deep state and the Soros regimes. You, you would, it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think they would be very much desirous of bringing, bringing down the institutional church. Well, they're desirous, the Freemasons are desirous in bringing down the true church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But this anti-church, this Bergolian monstrosity, this, this Freemasonic abomination oh they're they're completely invested the deep state completely wants that to keep going and they will in fact defend these um clerics and prelates who are very very much 
entrenched on board 100% with the with the monstrosity with the Soros Freemasonic one world government monstrosity masquerading you know trying trying to convince people that it is the one holy catholic and apostolic church so just make sure you understand the difference and the precision by all means stop giving the money absolutely but also have the savvy to realize but that that's not their their revenue stream and hasn't been for a very 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 long time something else to consider too and this isn't something the priest is going to be allowed to mention from the pulpit but if you ask them one-on-one they can answer this question and I would imagine this is true in, in pretty much every trad parish I know that uh, the two that I I that I go to occasionally here, and well, I shouldn't say occasionally, I alternate going back and forth to where I am. Um, it's it's different um, memos you have to put on the check, but they have what they call untaxed accounts. So if you if you donate to the building fund or you donate to uh, paying for utilities, they do not have to pay a, a royalty to the to the uh, diocese based on money that comes in for those purposes. Just ask the priest if you have any any accounts like that at the parish. That's one way of getting around it. Yeah, that's a really good litmus test, too, because I remember when I first entered the church in this Novus Ordo parish, I specifically asked, can I, when I set up this tithe, and I mean, I I even did the set up the automatic um, ACH withdrawal, you know, blah, blah, blah. I I set all that up and did it for a couple of years. And I, I specifically asked the parish priest, can I target this and say, okay, I want all of this to go to the building fund or I want half of this to go to the building fund and half to the RCIA program or whatever. And he told me, no, absolutely not. All monies that come in are just go into the general fund. And I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the truth. So I think that's a really good litmus test. If your priest, if you ask the priest and he says, no, absolutely not, it all has to go into a general fund. Well, really? Because in this parish over here, the priest said, of course, you can write in the memo and you can flag things for whatever you want. You can go 100% just into the building fund. Um, so wait a minute, what's going on here? Who's telling you the truth? Well, I think it's pretty clear who's telling the truth and who isn't, you know? So, um, you know, looking back in retrospect, the parish priest was huge, big time company man, um, um, gunning to be elevated and was absolutely totally looking to be ingratiated to and generate massive revenues for downtown for for the archdiocese for the chancery um and so that that was the answer that came back in the novus ordo parish no you can't but isn't it interesting that in trad parishes the answer is going to be well yeah of course you can and even if in a trad parish uh you're told no we can't get away with that there's always you, you could donate upstream uh, it could be, you know, the Institute of Christ the King Seminary or the Attorney St. Peter or Society of St. Pius X, um, if you're okay Most with them. Most of Norcia, Silver right. Stream, I mean, yeah, yeah. You, you donate directly to the source where the vocations are being formed. Yep. That's that's yeah. definitely a viable alternative. And maybe between now and when this comes out, we can have a list of suggestions, or maybe that could become its own blog post. Yeah, absolutely. Great idea. That's all I've got. Do you have anything else you wanted to hit? 
Well, I'm I'm sure that there are more questions, and we still have to do the Anne's conversion episode, and we'll we'll get that in the can at some point too. But no, I think this was great. This is a really good show. And we're not even done with all the Catholic questions. I didn't. I'm specifically staying away from ones that could be for now anyway. That could be entire shows to themselves, like Sedevacantism mm-hmm. and the Siri theory and. Uh, some other things. Uh, it's essentially a recap of. Can you start back at square one and go and go through every step of how you came to the conclusion that Benedict is still the Pope? I think each one of those could be a podcast to itself. Oh and yeah. Then, and then there's another one I put under the churchy questions, which really I guess I should have asked on Monday, and and that had to do with uh, whether borrowing and lending money at interest is usury. It, oh, that's that's an entire show. Yep, usury yep. is an entire show. Yeah. So yeah. for the folks who submitted those questions, I'm not ignoring them. I'm trying to give them their. <laughs> this, these are these are why don't why don't you talk about what I want you to talk about when I want you to talk about it in exactly the words that I would use. And that ignores I'm shaking. Next... I'm shaking my fist at you, super nerd. Can you can you hear it over the internet? I'm shaking my fist at you. That's why the audio went out for a minute. Okay, and, and that, <laughs> that ignores the other three pages of questions that got beyond that. So that for the most part, we have wrapped up the the churchy questions. Um, uh, those four that I just mentioned, three or four, that those could be shows to themselves. Um, the the episode that I'm referring to, or maybe it's gonna be two episodes. I don't know. We're gonna have to play this one by ear as as it goes. Um, what I'm I'm I've nicknamed on the notes as the spiritual journey of Ann Barnhart. You know how how you what what was your uh, progression? And I mentioned on the first questions and answer shows there were clusters of questions that came in on themes. The the question of how you converted and and uh, how how your family reacted to it and all and that what was the inspirations that initially got you going? That was by far far and away the biggest pot of questions. So the second one was why aren't you married? So. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the, the point Just, is, isn't it obvious? That's that's my boilerplate answer to that question. Isn't it obvious? <laughs> so the, we're not ignoring those questions. I'm setting it aside so that they can have a, their their proper venue. Um, trying to take care of uh, a lot of the questions that can be sort of batched together and and go through a bunch all at once. So yep. I cool. think I think we're more or less done with that for now. So all right, let's call it. Let's do it. The email address for the podcast, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors are every single day of the week, including Sunday. Please pray for the priests who are offering these masses. And don't forget that there is a weekly requiem mass for everybody who has died. If the person was on planet Earth and they are no longer on planet Earth uh, in, in a live sense, a mass is said for them. Um, and you've got something to say about the Matthew 1720 initiative. I always have something to say about the Matthew 1720 initiative. Well, I did cut doing, you off last recording, but yeah. <laughs> doing doing full fasting twice a week. I do Tuesdays and Fridays, but that's just me, whatever works for you. Except, remember, you can't fast on Sunday, because that is a first-class feast of the resurrection every Sunday. So you can't fast on Sundays. Um, and the intention is that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-pope, and the whole thing be publicly nullified. That Ratzinger be publicly recognized as being the one and only living pope ever since April of 2005 when he ascended to the Petrine Sea. That Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. And that Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, 
repent of what he has done, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. The only way you get rid of people like Bergoglio is through prayer and fasting. And so that's what the Matthew 1720 initiative is all about. Please join me in it. And until next time, when we will discuss something, I am Super Nerd. <laughs> and I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless you. 